All right, if you would be turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, Uh, we'll be in verses 13 through 20 this morning. And as you're turning there, let me give you the key truth that I would hope we could walk away with. The law is a means of grace that God uses to expose our need for Christ and draw us to him. Let me say that again. The law is a means of grace that God uses to expose our need for Christ and draw us to him. If you would, give your attention to the reading of God's word. This is Romans 7, 13 through 20. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so we we need to remember that this chapter, because we're coming up on one of the most hotly debated portions of Scripture as to who it's pointing to and what it means. A lot of ink has been spilled over who is Paul talking about. Is he talking about himself, that he is unable and can't do what he wants to do? Is he talking about a God-fearer, someone who doesn't yet know Jesus but is trying to use the law? Who is he talking about? Well, I think that's the wrong question, actually. The, the, the right question is the solution that he's pointing to and how it actually applies to all of those people, actually. And one of the reasons that I think it's been kind of a, a, a something we've wrestled with and not been able to come down on, in fact, Tom Schreiner, who's a whole lot smarter than I am, kind of throws it up in the air and says, I don't know, they all work. Which is, I think, to my point, that actually the thing that he's pointing to, remember this, is the antithesis of the law to the spirit. What he's trying to show is ultimately, no matter where you are, in either as an unbeliever or as yet believer or believer, you cannot depend on the law to exalt you, to change you, to transform you. It serves one purpose and one purpose only, and that is as a goad in the Spirit's hands to draw us back to God. And so I think he makes that point pretty clearly, and I hope that we can see that. Uh, And so that's important for us to keep in mind. Ultimately, he's showing us that the law can't do what the Spirit can do. The law can't die for us like Jesus did, right? All right, so how does your knowledge of something affect its truth? That's a pretty important question. Your knowledge of it actually doesn't affect its truth at all. But the next question is is more important, which is how how does your knowledge affect how something affects you or gives gives you power over it in your life, right? So if you have something wrong, it can have a significant impact on you, right? Let me give you an example. So you all have noticed, uh, because you've said something to me, I used to be out front, right, in front of the doors, uh, and I I would welcome people coming in the building, And many of you have thought I've moved inside because I've just gotten soft and I can't take the cold. 
That's not true, but it has been beneficial to be inside, I gotta be honest with you. Uh, and so, so what happened was I thought that we as a church only attract the most inhospitable visitors in all of the world. People, when they would come to the door, want to move past me so fast that I thought I was emitting some sort of odor, something was wrong. And, and so here's what's interesting. When we, when we have something off like that, notice I didn't look to myself for where the problem might be. I just came to the conclusion, no, we, we must be the, the church that attracts the most inhospitable people on the planet. I put it all on them, right? If you're visiting this morning, I'm not talking about you because I was inside. I'll, I'll illustrate in a moment. And so, and so uh, it, it, and many of you have heard me wrestle with this. I'm like, what is the problem? Like, I'm trying to talk to people, and they're just like, <laughs> okay, all right, <laughs> maybe later. Uh, and so uh, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who uh, their church is uh, um, a, a little bit ahead of us in terms of uh, some of these things. And uh, I used to be on staff at that church, and so I, I've had the ability to see them grow. And I sat down with, with Rhett, and I said, Rhett, what is, man, what is going on? And it was so, like to Rhett, it was so obvious because they've already dealt with this. He goes, well, why would you try to talk to people at an open door? And I went, oh, man, come on. He said, well, think about it. Like people see an open door and they don't want to feel like they're blocking it for the people behind them. Like, you know, and, and y'all may be thinking, God, we got the slowest pass from the planet. <laughs> you do. We got to be good at something. And I'm good at being slow. So, uh, and so it, when he said it, it's like the scales fell. Suddenly I've been writing apology letters to all the people who visited our church for the last eight years uh, for things I've thought about them. And so, and so I, I just said, all right, I'm going to move inside. Well, he said, move inside and see if it changes. Last week was my first week inside. We had four different visitors. Um, and they stood and talked to me. Now, either... Something happened in the universe and suddenly we're not the church that, uh, that, that doesn't attract the most inhospitable people in the world. And thank you to the couple that I met this morning. You guys were very hospitable. Uh, and so, uh, or I was wrong. Which is it? Those aren't birds, right? <laughs> Those are government devices. Uh, no, I was wrong. And, but notice the power of being wrong for eight years, mind you, and the impact it's kind of had. I got to be honest, it kind of was starting to weigh on me uh, as to what our, hosp our hospitality problem, which, as it turned out, turned to be the guy with the best intentions at the front door. And, it was, and, and so you having something wrong has a significant impact on you, right? And so I would argue that much of what we think we know about the law quite possibly is unbiblical and wrong. For the legalists, right, we've used these categories before, they think the law can save them. It can transform them. It can prove their worth. For the licentious, the one who, who looks at the law and says, no, what, what the, law, the law has no bearing in my life and ultimately has to say, if you're following, God was wrong. You understand? And that the law is not good. Well, what we've heard from Paul is that's not the case at all. In fact, he ended uh, last week's portion that Robbie preached through by saying the law is holy and righteous and good. But if you get its function wrong, you will hurt yourself. It's going to hurt you. If you get its function right, if you understand it for what it is and recognize it as a means of grace, and I mean that, it is a means of grace, which, by the way, if you're wondering, what's the definition of means of grace? 
A means of grace is anything that the Lord uses to draw us to himself. Anything that he uses to display to us his love and call us to his presence, that is a means of grace. And the law is a means of grace. But when you misuse it, you try to be wed to it as if it could be your spouse, as if it could give you meaning, it'll destroy you. And that's actually a grace in and of itself, that you can't actually accomplish what would cost you your eternity. So as we step into the text, let's pay attention to how Paul continues this argument and wants us to see something. And again, he's actually not pointing us to the law. He's pointing us to the giver of the law as good and loving and gracious. And let's make sure that we see that this morning. He says, did that which is good then, so he's already made the argument, the law is good. It had a function, it was righteous, and it was holy. Did that which is good then bring death to me? So what he's saying here is, did prior to the law, was he eternal? Was he going to live forever? Well, Paul's already actually made this argument in Romans 5. In fact, let's pause for a moment and flip back to Romans 5 and look at verses 12 through 14. And remember the greater context here is he's talking about the comparisons between the first Adam and Jesus as the fulfilling last Adam. And he showed how they were similar, and he showed how they were different. And so here, he's going to make it very clear that we could, we could not say that death precedes our knowledge of it. So you, you were going to die whether you knew it or not. You are going to die even though you don't know the date or the time or the how. It just is a reality. And how we function in reference to that becomes very powerful, doesn't it? If we try to think that we're going to live forever, if we just drink enough Asahi juice and some other stuff, right? And I'm, I'm a Blue Zone guy. I get the whole Blue Zone diet. It's a wonderful thing. But you're not living past 100, 110. And many of you may not want to. And so uh, you can't live forever in and of your own strength. And so what he's going to make sure we understand here is, is death is a byproduct of sin, and what he's referring to specifically is death and separation from God. He says in verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all humanity because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Did you hear that? And so, but sin is now counted where there is no law, or is not counted where there is no law. Now, what he means there is not that, it, that you haven't sinned. You have. You just don't know it. You don't know it as such, as violation of God's holiness, as violation of the relationship with God. But you don't know how to count it. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. So he just laid the ax to the root of the tree. If anybody would say, well, I didn't do what Adam did. My sin is different. It's lesser than. No, it is all from the, what we would consider the most small peccadillo to the greatest of evils. It is all worthy of death because it separates from God. And he said, an Adam who was a type of the one who is to come. So he's already uh, uh, dealt with that death is a byproduct of sin and it was reigning in the world before the law was given. Now, that's really important for us to understand the law as a means of grace. Would God have been just if he let us continue in our ignorance? Not knowing what was sin and what wasn't, what's holy and what's not, what's righteous and what's not. Would he have been just? Well, Paul's actually addressed this in Romans 1. The answer is yes. 
Because do remember that the Gentiles did not have the law. But what did they have? Well, they had creation, which also is a means of grace, which calls us to recognize we are not in control. When's the last time you called forth a thunderstorm? Or the last time you stilled the winds that were blowing a gale? You, did, you can't. I garden, right? And, and there's just some stuff you can't stop. I, I've got a, a powdery mildew problem on my bee balm uh, that is just killing me. And I can't figure it out and I've had it for years. I've done everything they've told me to do, but I've got no control whatsoever over powdery mildew. And I can't save my bee balm to save my life. And so that, that, that shows we are not in control. But creation does point us to a creator, and that that creator provides, and it's relational. So it is a means of grace. But what creation can't do is tell us we need Jesus. What creation can't do is teach us how to be holy. And so ultimately, it becomes insufficient for saving us. It is plenty sufficient for pointing us to the creator. But it cannot save us. So he would have been perfectly just if he never gave the law. And yet, he does. Now, why did he wait so long, maybe you're thinking? Why did he take so long to give them the law? They don't get the law until they're in the wilderness in Exodus 20. That's an awful long time. Well, I think, I suspect that one of the things that God is doing with the Old Testament is trying to show us how thoroughly inept and inadequate we are. He gave them creation as their means of grace for several hundred years. And did it save them? No. It can't. But it could point them to God where the Spirit can redeem them. So there are people who are in heaven who existed between Genesis 1 and Exodus 20 because of God's grace. But not because of creation. Creation didn't transform them or redeem them. And given creation, they still came out sinful and broken. So, finally, he gives them the law in Exodus 20, which, by the way, they have from Exodus 20 all the way through until Jesus comes. They had land, they had kings, they had it all. And where did it lead them? Further from God. It showed them that they couldn't save themselves, but there was a group of people who gave it the best run called the Pharisees and a number of other legalistic people and how did Jesus treat them who kept the law better than anybody on the planet? In fact, they made up laws so they wouldn't even get close to the laws they were supposed to keep. What was his take on them? You're not close. Because you are trying to use the law to exalt yourself and separate yourself from the rest of sinful man instead of recognizing that you are to be drawn to me because I love you. And so one of the reasons I think the Old Testament is as long as it is is because God wanted to say, I gave you every riven opportunity and resource to save yourselves, and you can't. And in his grace, the Spirit was still at work. People were still redeemed out of that time, right, which is a, a wonderful truth. And then he sends Jesus to be the embodiment of his righteousness and his holiness and his goodness and his love. And Jesus shows us that it's not just a head knowledge problem. It is, requires a transformation of which our baptisms is the sign and seal. This is why it's important that we remember our baptisms, that we are baptized ones. We're not legalists. We're not licentious. We're not creationists. We're not pagans. 
Christians who are baptized in the name of Jesus and in the, uh, uh, the fullness of the Trinity. And, and we are dead to sin and alive to God and alive to righteousness and holiness because Christ has imputed it to us. Amen. Which is why it's important that we see what Paul is trying to, to tell us here is that the law was totally unable to do what you're asking it to do or not do. And so death doesn't come because of the law. It comes because of sin. He says, it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order, and so here's the purpose, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. So the first purpose of the law is actually to show you that you are not God. Right? That's very important. We have that problem. Think of all the things that we're trying to change and all of the truths about science that we're trying to say don't matter uh, for whatever our purposes may be. Usually there's a selfish purpose. We don't do it just willy-nilly, right? Uh, but, but we like to mess with stuff and we like to make things in our own image and we like to try to force everybody else to bow to that image because we're idolaters at heart. And we think we're God at heart. And so it's important that the law, that there be something that would help us to see, pull back the curtain and show us you are not righteous or holy in and of yourself. That is grace. Especially it's grace for a people who can't see it, which Paul's going to say later. Right? Isn't it a gracious thing for God, instead of being mad at us for our blindness, to offer us sight? Instead of being mad at us for what we don't understand to help pull back the curtain and say, no, taste and see that I am good. And so he goes on, not only does it do that, he says, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Now this is one that kind of trips us up. But what he's saying is, is that the law should so whip up sin in us so that there is no argument whatsoever that we could save ourselves. Now, this is the problem with trying to say, wouldn't society work better according to God's law? Yeah, if you want it to descend into utter chaos. Because what's going to happen is people without Jesus are going to go bananas, which is what the law does. It spins everything up in a sense. And we see that throughout the history of Israel. Now, noetically, yeah, us not murdering each other. That's great. That's just great for neighborliness, not stealing each other's stuff. Yes, on paper. But see, that's if the law could actually transform the person. But it can't. All it can do is expose to the person their need for a savior, but it doesn't guarantee they're going to respond. All it does is serve as the goad. It's either going to draw them to God or they're going to run further from him, one way or the other. And so this is the two main parts of God's law is that it serves to expose and incite so that there's no argument about what our need truly is. So it goes on. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Now what he's saying here is that the law can, it can pierce us spiritually, but it cannot transform us materially. That's very important. That's why we get into so much trouble when we try to use it as such. See, God, look, I've kept your law. Why don't you love me more? 
That's why you see the most troubling passage toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 when he says, there will be those of you who appear before me and say, look, Lord, Lord, all that we've done in your name according to your law. And I will say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Wow, what a word. And prior to that, did he not take the law and make it insanely more complex if you're trying to use it for transformation by saying it's not just your outward deeds, by the way. He kind of does what Paul does. When Paul grabs covetousness as the main thing he's talking about, Jesus says, if you actually lust in your heart, you essentially have committed the act and are worthy of death. Whoa! How are we supposed to save ourselves? How is this supposed to be good? Well, that's not what it's intended for. What it's intended for is to show us you are dying. You cannot save yourself. You, left to your own devices, will only get worse and worse and worse. And that may be the worst of all things, which is pride and arrogance which is something we don't take account for, right? Like God makes it very clear he is most disgusted with pride and arrogance. I know very few sinners who, who, who uh, do the things that we think are dastardly that are super proud of them. I know a whole bunch of people who think that keeping the law and keeping their nose clean is worthy of somebody taking notice and maybe writing an article or a book about and so it's important that we see that the law was never intended to try to transform flesh, which is why we have to have a flesh and blood savior, someone who comes, who can actually bring a transformation in resurrection, but you must pass through death to get there. This is why that is required. It's not just a knowledge issue. It's not just some sort of spiritual thing. No, it is who you are, and who you are must be transformed. It must be recreated. You must undergo the type of change that only Jesus can bring. The type of change that requires him to die on our behalf and we to die with him, in essence, right? That's what baptism says. We die with him. Our sins are crucified on the cross with him. And then we must receive regeneration, we must receive resurrection. And that's the ongoing process of sanctification, which is why we need to remember these things because we are still mix of saint sinner. We are still seeking to make the law work for us, or we are still looking to get out from under any of God's imperatives. And so he makes it clear here that it can't, it can't do what so often you would ask it to do. And so he goes on. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now this, I've heard too many Christians grab this and be like, see, I'm, I'm so thankful for grace and I'm saved, but you know, I can't, I just can't. I, can't, I, I have a bad case of the can't-evens. So if you think that, you have to go back with some form of erasure material and get rid of all of chapter six, right? Because it says you are no longer a slave to sin. So Paul can't be contradicting himself here. Now, the trouble is he's speaking in the first person present. 
So he seems to be referring to himself, which is the main argument that many make, that he must be speaking of himself as a Christian. Well, that's, that's certainly possible because what he's essentially saying is not that he is unable uh, in the power of the Spirit. He's saying, outside of the Spirit, I can't accomplish any of this. Outside of the ongoing work of the gospel and Christ in me, no, I can't do any of this. In fact, if I'm going to try in my own strength, if I'm going to use a measure or law other than Christ, this is all I got. I may want to do good, but ain't no way I can. If he's talking about an unbeliever or someone who has become interested in the gospel, some refer to this as a God-fearer, the same is true. Right? Like if you are interested in God and the law has kind of drawn you in and you're kind of hanging out with Pharisees and, and other religious folks, you need to know it can't save you. It's the spirit that must be at work in you. All the law can do is point you to what it is you need past itself. It's a means, not an ends of grace. And he goes on. Now, if I do what I do not want... I agree with the law, and that is good. Well, what does that mean? Well, he's saying what we've been saying. Look, the point of the law is to expose that I can't be righteous in my own strength. And so when I actually do that according to the law, wow, it's actually good. It's a good exposure because it points past me, it points past what I'm trying to do to what I need the most, which is Christ. It's the only way it could be good. Is he calling sin good? No, he already dealt with that in chapter 6. Should we sin so that grace may abound? No. But what the good thing that the law does is show us of our need. It pulls back the curtain and it says, you are dying and you will die, and it will get worse if you don't run to the Savior. And he goes on to say, Now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So he's recognizing that there is this force within himself, this what we would call radical depravity. Some have called it total depravity. Eh, I equivocate with that term a little bit. I think radical is more suitable because we're not as bad as we absolutely could be, actually. There is common grace. So we are radically depraved and unable, right? And so this is what he's speaking to here. This is what is at work within me, and it happened before I took my first breath. It is part of being human. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So he's saying, my desires will never be strong enough to make it happen. That's really important, especially in a culture that says you can be anything you want to be. Y'all hear me? Like I, Some of you bristle at that. Like any, you, I can do anything I put my mind to. No, you can't. No, you can't. I guarantee you, none of you in this room, let me look around, can run a sub 440, I bet. I don't care how much you train. I'll train with you. I don't care what you do. You're not running a sub 440. Randolph is over there thinking, eh. Oh, no. <laughs> My, one, of, one of your girls might could. But sooner or later, time has its say, and physics wins the game. I would love to dunk on all of y'all in a basketball game. Ain't fixing to happen. 
It might have could have happened a few years ago, but not no more. You can't haul to, I can't haul 230 in the air like I used to. I don't know if gravity's gotten stronger or what's going on, but, you know, science has got to figure that out. Right? So, so there's just things we can't, you, you, you can't do. But yet we kind of hold in our minds somewhere this notion that, oh, no, 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 we can. No, you, you, you can't. You can't be God because you can't go back and be eternal. You can't start from the beginning. But we try, don't we? We want so desperately to, to make God wrong, not recognizing it is going to cost us the whole of our lives. It's going to kill us. And he's so gracious to be so patient with us, to give us so many goads to call us to himself, to be gracious to us, to help us to see you can't. You can't. Desire doesn't matter. Will doesn't matter. None of it matters. You can't do it. And he goes on. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, that can't be Paul talking about himself as a Christian. What he's talking about is himself, in whatever form it is, trying to live by the law, according to the law, based on the transformative inability of the law. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Which again, what he's admitting is this thing must be dealt with. It dwells within him. It's not an external thing. It must be transformed. It must be put to death. This is why Paul uses the language of our sin being crucified with Christ in Colossians chapter 2. It is crucified on the cross, and that is good news for us. It is good news for us that we can't do this because if we could... Woe be unto us, we would make people pay to listen to us talk. We'd make people pay for the program to get to where we've gotten to and have no uh, refund for when they fail. Right? We see this all throughout culture, don't we? Everybody trying to look at, look at that life hack I've come up with or the diet hack I've come up with. And, and you know, if, you just, if you're just disciplined, that's, that's the beauty. One of the reasons those folks are millionaires is because we're so bad at what they're offering. Right? If it really worked, it would be one generation, they'd be out. There'd be no reason to have any more diets because we'd all gotten it right. But we are horrifically undisciplined. And we just can't. We want to do better. And we see it. The Lord shows us over and over again. And we just don't like process, do we? We want to be instead of become. And God, the whole way along, has been about the process because the process is us learning of the profundity of his love for us. We would never know how much he loves us without suffering. We would never know how much he loves us without limits. We would never know how much he loves us without the death and resurrection of Christ. And so the law is an instrument in the Redeemer's hands to goad us to himself. And I know that we still struggle with this because as, as someone who is willing at times, I don't do it all the time, and every time I do it, I don't like it, by the way. You need to know that. Who is willing to confront people or, or call out some of what I see, not all, some, I have yet to have anyone super excited about that. Not one time. Now, some will circle back, but usually uh, it's costly. And this is kind of what, like, this is what the law does. When you expose stuff, it ain't popular. 
But it's supposed to expose, to draw us to God, not drive us from him. And we still are in the position of, like what Paul's saying here, we don't like it. We don't like being known. We don't like feeling exposed. We don't actually like being loved. And that's what we need to wrestle with. And that's what Paul's trying to get us to see as he points past the law to the lawgiver, past the, the, the means of grace to the one who extends the grace so that we would not find ourselves broken through our efforts, through our trying, through our straining, through our failing. That is grace. And we're gonna hear that. Uh, I hope you will hold that intention because the way this just ended, it didn't sound like grace. We didn't get there yet, but the benediction is gonna remind us that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law no longer thunders over you. The law can still be a means of grace, actually, by the way. Right? It can still draw us further up and further into the love of God, which is what it was always intended to do. So listen to what Charles Hodge says about this particular passage and about the law. He says, the law, although it cannot secure either the justification or sanctification of humanity, it performs an essential part in the economy of salvation. It enlightens conscience. That means it ignites your mind to the reality that you are sinful. And it secures its verdict against a multitude of evils which we should not otherwise have recognized as sins. We just don't think most stuff's all that bad. How many of you, when you sinned, and you knew you did, uh, one of your excuses, why ain't hurting nobody? Yes, you are. You and that's how much God loves you, that he would not leave you to harm yourself with things that you think don't matter. And he goes on. It arouses sin, increasing its power and making it both in itself and in our consciousness exceedingly sinful. So the purpose of this is to make sure that we get you can't do it. That may seem, well, that don't seem fair. Well, no, that's how foolish and hard-hearted and stiff-necked we are. We don't trust it unless it's total. And even then, we got questions. And he goes on. It therefore produces the state of mind, which is a necessary preparation for the reception of the gospel. It is a means of grace. Now, let me ask you, how has the Holy Spirit and that's important, used God's law as a means of grace to expose your need for Christ and draw you closer to him. This is worthy of you thinking about uh, and, and recognizing, man, God, you are so good that you, that you keep on with us. You know, you've heard maybe the illustration that uh, some, some people draw the, the thing where the cross is small at the beginning of your salvation and as it goes, you know, it has this, it gets bigger and bigger because as you grow in maturity in Christ, you actually come to know more and more of your sin, which is not, you want to be careful of, of worm theology and recognize, no, the reason for you to see more and more of your sin is so that you could experience more and more of God's grace. This is how much he loves you and how truly broken you are. And he will often use his law through his word to show us, right? So one of the things for me uh, where he very specifically used his law and the power of the Spirit is on the issue of the Lord's Day Sabbath. 
And so there was a season of my life, and I just had the opportunity to share this some with the REF students at Winter Conference, but where I was so proud of the fact that I lit the candle at both ends, doused it in gasoline, and burned everything. I was proud of that. I loved it when people were like, dude, how do you do this? I'm like, well, you can buy the book. You can buy the tape. I'll be selling stuff later. I'll help y'all out. I never did that necessarily, but it's kind of running in the background. I was so proud of the fact I was killing myself. And, and, And the Lord in great grace gave me this mathematical pattern. For 12 days straight, I could, I, Susan could tell you, I could burn it to the ground. And everybody with me, by the way. And then, I, and then I'd come in, right, after work, and I'd, I'd fall on the couch at about five o'clock, and I would sleep, and that pattern would repeat for two days. I'd sleep for hours. Recover, get up, burn it down again. 12 and two. Kind of got to thinking, huh, If you break that into six and one, that sounds kind of familiar, right? Now, it's not that we are not to work hard and that we're not to put forth effort and steward the things that we are to do and and to use our intellect and to use our strength and to use our wisdom and artistic nature to create beauty and all those things. Yes, six days, do it. But there's one day that is a gift to you that you get to rest in the Lord that you get to feast on the good of your hands, the good that you've done, and even recover from the bad that you did, and rest in the finished work of Jesus and be restored and refreshed and healed. So thus began the Lord's Day Sabbath. And I'm kind of, again, I'm slow. But all I could give, I thought, was an hour. So we started with an hour. And that hour was so good, I wanted to put 23 more around it. And so, so we've come to the practice that we now have where we celebrate God's goodness, we eat good, we drink good, we laugh good, we enjoy. This is a day that's a ceasefire. It's changed how I think about pastoral ministry. It's changed how I think about interacting with you here at church. Um, and, and, and it's been beautiful. But it was God's law through the Spirit saying this is gift to you but you cannot pat yourself on the back for keeping it each week. It is to point past itself to the one who gave it to you. So the Sabbath is not good if it's about me making sure y'all know how righteous and holy I really am. The Sabbath is not good if I fail to taste and see that the Lord is good and know that it is gift and all I do is whine about what I can't do instead of all the good you get to do. And so that was one way in which the Lord has used that for me. And I would challenge you to think through how the Spirit has used God's laws ago to show you his goodness to you and his love for you. So Romans 7, through 13, uh, 7, 13 through 20 teaches us that the law is a means of grace that God uses to expose our need for Christ and draw us to him. Christ Community Church, would you join me in longing for the law to better serve God's grace? That we would not be legalists, And that we would not be licentious, that we would not cheapen God's grace or make it obnoxious, but instead that we would give off the sweet aroma of the gospel because of the means of grace, because of his love for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you were so good that when we were dying and and when we didn't care and we thought we were you, you graciously used a goad of some kind to draw us to you. All of us come in that way. For some, it was the law. 
For some, it was creation. For some, it was conviction in the spirit. And, and Lord, you are so good to have so many means at your disposal to expand your family. God, may we be those who recognize the beauty of the means of grace and make use of them. Not as an end in and of themselves, not as a means to separate ourselves from others, but actually to unify us in your love for us. And God, may we, may we help others to see your goodness. This is the great failing of Israel who had the beauty of all the means of grace, who failed to carry it to the surrounding nations and instead suppress them as a light under a bushel. May we not be like them. May we be hospitable. May we be loving. May we be gracious. May we be humble and kind. May we look like Jesus because of your means of grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.